This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, a public committee has suggested a list of several names to the New Orleans Public School District for buildings currently named for slave owners and Confederate sympathizers. We also have new COVID numbers from schools. The city has asked a judge for a stay on construction of the jail facility known as Phase 3, while the case is under review by a higher court. And new numbers provided to the lens by the city show that the amount collected in fines for violations of short-term rental laws are much larger than originally reported. Also in executive session, the Convention Center Board voted in favor of filing a lawsuit against the New Orleans Regional Transit Authority over millions of dollars in contested recurring tax revenue. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen's here. Hey, Marta. Good morning, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein's here. Hi, Michael. Good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado is joining. Hey, Charles. Good morning. So, Marta, first up in, in education, a committee has moved forward with recommending several names, and a lot of educators have come up in those names. Tell us what the uh, committee announced this week. Yeah, so there's a public hearing this week. Um, we have 20 school buildings that the uh, school district has decided to rename um, because they were named either for slave owners or Confederate sympathizers. And now kind of the next phase of that process is that we have a list of names to rename the buildings with. And, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, familiar names you're going to see on there. And there's also, uh, like I said, you know, there's some educators that were brought up this week um, who are just local educators, Leah McKenna and Elliot, uh, Dr. Elliot Doc Willard, um, who people really spoke passionately about hoping that they would have a school named after them. Okay. And we talked last week that you assumed there would be some pushback from school parents and alums uh, on the renaming process. Has there been any? You know, I was really surprised at this public hearing to not hear much pushback. There were, there were two people who commented who, you know, thought Ben Franklin, uh, for Ben Franklin High School should, you know, have another shot and should be able to keep the name because he proposed abolishing slavery and later became an abolitionist, even though he was at one point a slave owner. Um, but the the committee and the, the school board have really just stayed strong in that they had created categories for um, these people and these names. And if you fit one, you're on the list and you're out. So, right. And as you explained last week, the school district only controls the buildings that they own, and then the operators inside those buildings control their own name of their charter, for example. Are there are those groups making any decisions about changing any names? Right, so I think, you know, the McDonough 35 alumni, which we know is a, a, a school that is known here, uh, basically what everyone will say is for black excellence. It was the first high school open to African-American students in the city and you know, has been highly regarded for a long time. So what I find interesting is that Inspire NOLA, a charter group, runs McDonough 35, and they used to run McDonough 42. They changed McDonough 42 to just 42 charter school. Hmm. But I don't know if they're going to change McDonough 35 because because of that history that it has. Um, 
you know, some alumni are saying we got to keep the name. We want to keep the name. You know, no one thinks of John McDonough, who was a slave owner and philanthropist when we say McDonough 35. And then some other people are saying, why do we need to keep McDonough when, you know, when we think of that school, we just think of literally the number 35. So, you know, it could be 35 high school, it could be 35 senior high. Can, can I ask you something, Marta? Um, we have heard a lot since they started this about uh, McDonough 35 and Ben Franklin in particular. One other school I've been curious about uh, when it comes to what are they going to decide to do with the actual school name is uh, Lusher. Have we, have we heard anything from their administration at all? Um, we have not heard from their administration, and to be honest, I haven't asked them recently. Um, I do know that at the beginning of this process, um, in some OPSB board meetings, there was some pretty strong pushback, people who wanted to keep the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think as we've you know continued, people have figured out that the building name doesn't equate to the charter name, which some other uh, lusher parents were criticizing and saying, you know, what... OPSB, what are you even doing? Like, this is a, you're not even really taking a stand if you're just changing the building. building. It's not going to change the name of the school. So Hmm. I have not heard specifically from Lusher in the last couple weeks, and I'm not sure what's going to happen there. But it it is interesting because they have multiple different building names. They go by Lusher Charter School, but, you know, also their nonprofit is named Advocates for Arts-Based Education. So Hmm. there's a lot of names there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. And this whole process seemed to be pretty speedy. And in fact, there was a little bit of um, disquiet around the deadline because it was it came up super fast. But then the, yesterday they announced in a press release that there's another opportunity for the public to weigh in. Tell us about yeah, that. Yes, so there's going to be a second public hearing in, uh, next week on May 5th. Um, and then I do think there was some confusion around the process. This has been going on for many months, right? This started last year. Um, however, the list of schools that was gonna were gonna have their names changed only came out within the last month. Was voted on, um, and I don't think people realized that was gonna happen this month because the public comment period for submitting new names is open until Friday. Okay, and can you give me a sense of how much input, uh, not input, but um, rather influence, this committee will have in the final say? Yeah, I think my guess would be that the superintendent will go with whatever their recommendations okay. are. And I think they're going to make specific recommendations um, for each building based on, you know, educators who taught there or, you know, the history of the neighborhood or the, the history of the area. Um, but I think what we are going to see in the future is we're going to have a lot of uh, more complicated names. Like we already know we have at many schools like Pierre Capdell at Avery Alexander Elementary School, which is, you know, just kind of a mouthful. Right, right. Then to carry that question even another step, how much influence does the public, do you think, have on the committee? For example, if there's a really loud, vociferous group advocating for something either non-changing or to change to a specific name, do you think that that will sway the committee? I do think this is um, slightly like less political and more, you know, the committee is a, a team of historians um, with, and also some community members. So I'm hoping that there, you know, there's a lot of community voice in here, but you know, it is, it is unofficial in terms of, you know, voting and who, who actually has the power to change these names. But I'm, I'm guessing that the, they're going to listen to the community and the, especially the historian review team. Right. Okay. And tell us what's going on with COVID in schools. 
Yes, uh, COVID numbers, uh, cases dropped just, you know, slightly this week, um, and, and quarantines also dropped. So I think, you know, maybe, obviously I'm not a health expert, but I think maybe we did see a little Easter spring break bump, and now maybe we're coming down from that. Right. I, really, they never, at least for the past couple of months, they've really been pretty consistently low, uh, the school numbers. Am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think we've caught crossed the 20k threshold in quite a while right Um, but we did see quarantines go up quite a bit last week we were in the you know 200 range but now we're in the 100 range and most of these schools are going to be going off for summer break in like three or four weeks right oh yeah we're we're in testing season right now and then it's going to be graduation season and then kids are going to be out of school or they're going to be back in school for summer school which there's going to be a lot more of that this summer so Right, but, but still fewer kids in school buildings, I imagine, during summer school. Right, yeah. Marta, do you know, just a, a, a curveball here, um, do you know how they administered tests to those kids who have stayed remote? The yeah, standardized so what they tests? did is they, the state did require that you take the standardized tests in the building, in the school building, so you had to come in. But a, what a lot of the schools did is they set up uh, different times for those kids to come in, not during the regular school day, um, or not with the number of kids who are in person. Uh, so like at Encore Academy, for example, they have had remote Fridays this entire time. So that's when um, virtual students have come in to test. Other schools, I think they've done uh, maybe some testing in the evenings or just kind of created separate areas of the building for students. Okay. All right. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. Nick, up next, phase three, again. City is uh, in court asking for a stay in construction on phase three. We're gonna try to remind people what this is. What's the quick background and what are they saying why they wanna delay now? Sure, so phase three, um, this, this whole debate is part of a, a federal consent decree that the, the city and the sheriff's office are under that was entered into because the jail's not providing constitutional care to to the detainees um, who were being housed in it. One of the big issues was uh, provision of uh, mental health care, both medical and mental health care. And a new jail was built, which opened up uh, in 2015. It was determined that that jail did not have adequate space to house prisoners with, with mental health needs. For several years, they were being held at a state facility about an hour outside the city. But recently, the, the state uh, informed the city and the sheriff's office that they would no longer um, be providing that service. So what's been happening is there's been an ongoing argument about what to do about that. And in 2016, the city agreed under the previous administration to, to move forward with phase three, which is an 89-bed facility uh, that would be built to house these detainees with mental health needs. But just recently... Um, under the new administration, who had been uh, also moving forward with phase three and providing regular updates to the courts on, it, on its progress, uh, decided that they no longer thought that the building was necessary um, and, and no longer thought it was financially viable. Um, so that was, that was last June. Uh, the city said, we no longer want to build this. After a, a long a period of litigation and, and lots of hearings, the court said, you have to do it anyway. Now the city has appealed that ruling and they are hoping to, to hold off on building it until an appellate court makes a decision. As you suggested, Nick, it's possible that they'll appeal this. That would be the city's 
maneuver that they could potentially make to the district court in order to get a stay? Yeah, to the appellate court. Um, okay. So, yeah, I think I think that will likely happen. I mean, I think I think the other thing to to look at is the city. You know, this issue, while it's been kind of being argued in court, is also has has sort of mobilized a lot of people in the in the criminal justice reform world who um, are opposed to to spending any more money and and expanding the jail at all. Um, so it's become kind of this political issue as well as the, as well as a legal issue. And what we're going to see, what the city uh, claims, is that it needs to go to the city planning commission and ultimately the city council to get approval for this new facility. Um, so, so that's going to create a situation in which the the city council is going to need to take a vote on whether or not um, to approve a zoning change for the facility. And there's going to be a ton of pressure on them. I think both from the federal court that thinks that this facility is legally required to be built and the political forces uh, that that have kind of mobilized in opposition Mm. and how that plays out is going to be really interesting. And I think we think about ways in which this facility might get delayed or might, you know, whether or not there's any way it won't get built. I think that's in my mind, and you know, I'm I'm not a, a legal expert, but that seems like more of an obstacle to getting getting it built than the legal appeal hmm. um, in the Fifth Circuit. But you know, like I say, I, I could be I could be misreading that, but that's my instinct. The, the thing here is that there is there is currently an alliance between you know sort of criminal justice reform advocates in the city right now, which makes sense, of course, because you know they're both taking a position that they don't want a new jail building built. But you know the the, the bigger context here is that criminal justice reform advocates have have for years been pushing the city to deal with this by studying and coming up with a plan to treat these people in in a medical setting rather than in jail setting and the city has taken virtually no action on any of that until you know what is now the 11th hour it's only in the last couple months that the city's even announced that it intends to conduct a feasibility study on that and at that point the jail, the new, the new jail building was already, you know, halfway through the design phase. One of the reasons this stay is interesting is this, if it's not granted and the city is somehow able to convince the Fifth Circuit um, of its arguments that they, they shouldn't need to build this facility, there's a good chance that the city will they'll have started construction on it uh, by the time that decision is made. It will put the bidders for this construction project in sort of a, a tenuous position, given given there is a chance that they could pull out of it at some point. And meanwhile, is the work continuing on, or is it sort of performative with the, with the architect? Yeah, so most of the design phase is done. So really, now the next steps are, are getting approval from uh, the City Planning Commission and FEMA, and, and the city has, you know, represented to the court that they're moving forward with both those processes. Okay. And, and that's going to, you know, that we've seen it before. We saw it a few years ago. Uh, that's going to be, you know, when this gets into the realm of the City Planning Commission and the City Council, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, especially if the city is under a court order. You know, what is the council, what is the Planning Commission, what is the council in particular going to do? You know, these are, these are political actors we're dealing with 
now, and they're going to be listening to the, their constituents. So right. um, it, it'll be, again, interesting to see. Okay, Nick, thank you for the update. Thanks. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Philip Kiefer, health reporter here at The Lens. When it matters, The Lens is here. And we're here because of you. Because of the thousands of people like you who support this service, you get the news that you tell us matters. Your tax-deductible gift now ensures that everyone in the community has access to facts and diverse voices and points of view. Ensure that you have the information you need and the news that matters. Please consider making a donation this year on NOLA Gives Day, May 4th. Every donation adds up to a public media service that serves the community. Make a donation at thelensnola.org slash donate. And thank you. Michael, the big story from last week was the uncollected fines from STRs in the city, uh, but that was based on incomplete information that you were given by the city. What's the update here? on the short-term rentals and the fines collected by the city. Yeah, so, so this story um, started <clears throat> with a uh, March presentation by Safety and Permits Director Tammy Jackson. Um, she was giving a presentation on um, the city's implementation and enforcement of new short-term rental rules that were put into place in late 2019. In the middle of that presentation, uh, Tammy Jackson had indicated that the city had collected $1 million in fines over two years. And that raised some eyebrows for some short-term rental critics who have been uh, critical of, of you know, uh, how well the city is enforcing these rules and, and doubtful that the city had collected that much money uh, in fines. So we ended up submitting public records requests and obtaining documents regarding how many uh, short-term rental fines had been adjudicated and, uh, had been adjudicated and collected uh, from January 2019 to January 2021. What we reported was that over that time, the city had only levied $68,000 in short-term rental fines um, and had actually only collected $1,500. Now those numbers were not correct. So let me let me just interject for a second. I'm sorry, Michael. Those numbers are not correct, but it is what the records we we got appeared to say initially. So Michael's initial story was was an accurate representation of the records that we had received. Um, it just just turned out that those records were not pulled in the in the best possible way. So what what, what originally happened with the short term rental with the incomplete short term rental fine records? Um, you, you submit a public records request to the city attorney's office, and then the city attorney's office is kind of responsible for collecting the responsive records and sending those to you. Now what happened here is that the city attorney's office thought they knew how to compile these records, but actually did not. So what the city attorney's office compiled and sent us was not actually reflective of all of the fines that had been levied and then collected. I will say that, that something from our original story that I think still stands true is that that $1 million figure that was cited um, by the city um, during that short-term rental um, enforcement presentation was not an accurate representation of the short-term rental fines that have been collected by the city. Um, so the explanation there is that 
when Tammy Jackson cited this $1 million figure, she was actually talking about all code enforcement adjudications over the last two years, not just short-term rentals. Um, now, while our original numbers were you know, incorrect based off those documents, I still think that that's a significant thing because this is a trend we've seen with this administration in terms of misleading statements um, that are only correct if it's qualified by an additional statement that wasn't included originally. So in this case, in the middle of a short-term rental presentation, mm. they said, we've collected $1 million in fines over the last two years, not mentioning that they had suddenly started talking about all adjudications, not just short-term rentals. Right. Um, and now after the fact, they say, well, we never claimed um, that these were just short-term rentals. And, and that is technically true. Um, the sentence that Tammy Jackson said, the sentence that was included on the PowerPoint they showed, didn't you know say specifically they were about short-term rentals, but again, this happened in the middle of the short-term rental, term rental. Right. City council members were under the impression that you know uh, uh, they were referring to short-term rentals. That's how it was reported by WDSU. So again, I think that that issue uh, of bringing maybe misleading uh, information to the public is still significant. Right. Yeah, and then the, and so the the and the bottom line ultimately is is. You know, when we eventually got the correct records, depending on how you calculate it, depending on which ones you count, the, the real number is, is, is somewhere between about 190,000 and 450,000. So it's, uh, you know, quite a lot more in either case than, than $1,500, but quite a lot less than a million dollars either way. Now, as to how this all played out, we have attempted and, and I believe we've successfully attempted to sort of explain this all step by step. If you read it in the story, we've attached a, a lengthy editor's note, and we've and we've attached an even lengthier edi editor's note to the original version of the story, which is no longer on our website, but still available for people to read, and we have a link to it. Yeah. But you know, at the end of the day, you know, the city made some mistakes on this, and we we also didn't get everything right the lesson for for me here was always be skeptical of these records you're getting back from the city the thing i'm i'm kicking myself about um is not performing a, a sort of more thorough analysis on the initial records that we got however um as i later discovered had i performed that analysis on on the records we got we still wouldn't have, we would have arrived at a bigger number but it still wouldn't have been the right number so once again i personally apologize to, to our readers for, for getting this wrong initially. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll promise, you know, we promise to, to certainly be more skeptical of these things when we receive them in the future. I also apologize for, for, for my role in it. I think that these types of stories are really interesting where you're getting, you know, it, it's a story that has, you know, negative implications on, on the city. Um, and we had gone back and forth with the city. I mean, an email exchange, you know, 10 back and forth emails. Um, and, and I don't know if you remember last week during the podcast, I had mentioned that I was, you know, still feel after we published, I was feeling a little skeptical of how low these numbers were. Um, and I think we were at the time as well. But again, you know, you go back and forth with the city over and over asking right. them to confirm, you know, giving them room to bring up, you know, any objection they want. You know, and we didn't receive those objections. We didn't. And we didn't receive yeah. any objections. And, and yeah, Michael. Michael was very transparent throughout the reporting process, um, and you know, he 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 did what he needed to do with it. It's just it's just one of those things. The good spin on this, um, if you want to see it this way, and you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't, um, is that it's a, it's it ultimately shows how this 
system can work because you know we 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 found out that it that it was probably wrong um, even before we you know with without even objection from the city at this point they never they didn't object to the story post publication we didn't get any information that the, the original story might be wrong until days after we published right and without even getting a go ahead from the city we immediately uh, told our readers in explicit detail that that, that it might be wrong and that we would um, and that we would get the correct information as soon as possible. And that's exactly what we did. And that was one heck of a headline for the city not to object. Charles, I don't know if you remember the story we did on The Assessor like a year ago. A, couple, a, a year or two ago, we did a story about Orleans Parish Assessor. He had been telling us for weeks that the city of New Orleans wasn't assessing this huge category of business property taxes, which would have... It would have meant that we were losing tens of millions of dollars a year. And we kept going back to them over and over saying, are you absolutely sure we're not collecting this money? And Charles, I think it was like 30 minutes before we published where we you know, made one last call and said, are you all absolutely sure? Because this looks really, really bad. And in that instance, they were like, okay, actually we've been wrong for weeks. And you know, anyway, this story reminded me a lot of that mm. one, except we couldn't get anyone at the end of the day to kind of, um, dispute it look at this closely and, and and kind of get to the bottom of it I, I mean I think that's really what it comes down to yeah okay great well I think you all did a really really admirable job in the proper retractions and explanations of what happened and why so thanks another okay. slow roller here is the convention center the governing board of the convention center on Wednesday voted in favor of filing a lawsuit against the RTA over millions of dollars in contested recurring tax revenue. What's the story here? It's been going on for a while. Yeah, so the headline here is that our publicly funded convention center is suing our public transportation system over about three to four million dollars a year. Now, this dispute goes back um, a couple decades, actually. Um, the, the RTA is mainly funded by a 1% sales tax uh, levied in the city that voters approved in a 1985 ballot uh, proposition. Now, the ballot proposition said that that money would be dedicated exclusively to public transportation. However, it exempted hotel room sales from the tax. You fast forward 15 years to 1999, um, the RTA sues the city saying that the exemption on hotel rooms was invalid and that the city should apply this one percent you know public transportation sales tax to hotel room sales as well now tourism groups ended up intervening in that lawsuit and they ended up negotiating with the rta and came out with this kind of strange deal where the one percent sales tax would be applied to hotel room sales but the RTA would only get to keep half of that money. Of the money that went to the tourism industry, about half of that went to the convention center. So in recent years before the pandemic, this meant that the RTA was giving up about six to $7 million a year, um, and the convention center was, was getting about three to $4 million a year. In 2019, um, the RTA simply stopped making those payments. They wrote a letter. There were a lot of arguments there, and, and I don't wanna oversimplify um, a lot of legal arguments that they put in there. But, um, you know, the crux of it was that public transportation needed the money more than the convention center and the tourism in industry, um, which is widely seen as a, 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 you know, healthily funded, you know, uh, a 
part of the, the city civic institution. So anyway, the, the, the convention center has tried to negotiate with the RTA, um, they say, um, to no avail. And now they're taking this step and they're going to try and reclaim these dollars through a lawsuit. Okay. Why do you think now they've tried to settle? I think that, you know, the coronavirus probably put any consideration they had on hold, um, you know, uh, just like a lot of things. I mean, the convention center is, is now restarting a lot of initiatives, a lot of, you know, plans that they had pre-coronavirus that they had put on hold. So um, I guess that, you know, launching a lawsuit against the RTA in the middle of the pandemic probably wouldn't have um, mm. been the best marketing move for them. So that might have been a consideration. Um, you know, I'm not sure exactly, you know, about the timing, but but the coming out of the coronavirus, you know, it seems to be a, an awful coincidence. Hmm. I, th- I mean, I yeah, I, I assume I, I I think you're probably right there, and I think I assume that you know part of, part of the the timing issue is that one they're you know they're restarting their their big capital projects in earnest. Um, and two, uh, they're you know they're they're seeing they've they've lost a, a lot of money over the past year um, because we haven't been able to host any conventions. Um, so I think I think those two issues probably have something to do with the timing as well. And you know the prospect of tourism starting to pick up again. Right. From RTA's side, I would guess that their ridership is drastically down, and so revenue probably is. Uh, also down in the last year, I would guess. Yeah, and they also, you know, the same way that the convention center is losing out on money because, you know, people aren't booking hotels as much and they get revenue from hotel sales, you know, the RTA is funded through this sales tax and sales tax have been down, just, you know, less tourists, less spending in general. So, um, yeah, the RTA, you know, everyone's feeling it, obviously. Um, And like Charles said, you know, the convention center lost tens of millions of dollars in the last year um, in reserves that they had, that they had to spend kind of just staying afloat. Um, you know, this year isn't going to be a healthy year for them either. I mean, even after, even after we start rolling, it, it's going to be a while until these large scale conventions. I mean, that's going to be one of the last things that comes in, you know? So yeah, uh, you know, everyone's strapped for cash. And they voted to yes con- to litigate. Yeah, they, they voted unanimously yes. I did note that all the other votes um, in that meeting up until this one, they called out the individual commissioners by name and had them vote. For this vote, um, they just said, basically uh, just called out all in favor and then everyone said yes and then any opposed and no one said anything. So anyway, I just thought that was an interesting little detail from the meeting. But yeah, no, there wasn't a lot of discussion um, after the executive session. I mean, I'm guessing that most of the discussion happened behind closed doors. There was a short speech. Um, you know, one, one thing, one justification that was given in this kind of short statement by the, the chair of the board, um, Jerry Reyes, was that they've used that uh, these tax collections to secure bonds in the past. And they say part of the, 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 the agreement that they signed on to when taking out this debt was that they would enforce the, their rights to this money. They would make sure that you know this money was collected to, to ensure that they'd be able to keep repaying this debt. Um, so they say that they are required by their bond covenants to, to, to make the, the effort to collect this money. 
I'm a little interested in the details of that. I'm not sure if whatever institution gave them these bonds, you know, reached out to them and is forcing the issue, whether this is more of a justification because they want to collect this money or whether this could have, you know, bond rating implications. I'm really not sure, Hmm. um, you know, how pressing that issue is, but that's a justification they gave as well. Okay, so presumably the next step will be the actual filing of some suit. Yeah, so the resolution uh, uh, basically approves, you know, uh, the, the convention center's counsel to write up um, the lawsuit and, and file it. So uh, we'll be looking out for that. Okay, well, thank you. That's another, uh, another one that's years in the making. We'll see what thank happens. You. Okay, guys, thank you so much for your work this week. Thank you, Carolyn. Bye, Carolyn. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Nick Krastel, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.